Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So today we're joined by Deb Farnworth-Wood. Did yes. I pronounce that correctly, Deb? You did. It's I a did. mouthful. Yes. I love the double. Is it, is it is a double barrel name or hyphenated name? How do you define that? It's hyphenated. Hyphenated. It's, yeah, so it's there, born with wood. There you go. And this is an interesting episode because uh, Deb was the founder of Australian Skin Clinics, which was, I guess, one of the other really big successful chain clinics that we've had here in Australia. You've had quite an interesting journey. Um, we met through a mutual friend, Mr. Bob Akmoyne, who everyone knows who's been on this podcast number of times. He's a, a larger than life character. And he actually suggested that we have a chat with you, even though you and I had met previously um, he suggested that we have a discussion because you followed a fairly similar uh, career path in terms of what you've done here in the Australian aesthetics industry. You were more focused on the Queensland, I guess, territory, whereas Australia, uh, LCA was initially only in New South Wales. So you sort of had your businesses almost running in parallel. And we thought it'd be a really interesting discussion to hear about your journey, what it's been like for you. You do a number of other things outside of this business and you have done and continuing to do some exciting things into the future. So welcome to the podcast and and thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I, I love these history ones. Yeah. Just to find out where everyone came from, how it all started and, you know, obviously some of the chains have merged or changed hands or whatever. So yeah. it's, it's good for injectors to sort of understand, I guess, the lay of the land. Yeah. And I guess before we get too much into it, you guys had a funny story because Jake's first job was actually at Australian Skin Clinics in, yeah. in Sydney and you didn't really know each other. But No. Yeah. So, I mean, I was like literally this unknown POM, no, you know, no one knew me as an injector because I was working in hospital. And I think I was at that transition where I was sort of dipping the toe to see if there was something outside of the nightmare of a hundred hour week in hospital. Uh, and yeah, I, I was offered a job at Australian Skin Clinics in Warringah Mall, so sort of the north side of the, yeah. the harbour. Northern beaches. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, I wasn't there that long, but I, I really enjoyed working with the team and it was a nice sort of first step for me, I guess. And at the time they said to me, oh, you must meet... Uh, Deb, she's like, you know, the, the guru, the god, the goddess. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, like, please arrange some time. That'd be great. It never happened. And and here we are now. The first time I've met you in, I've been injecting here for what, six yeah, or seven years now? It's been now. a while. It's gone fast, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do remember that. And we were, I know when that was happening, we were, um, in the middle of a rollout for many clinics and it was kind of tear your time. Where do you go? Where do you end up? And there were actually, um, there were sort of three senior managers at that part and we used to each take a different almost a different town or whatever so I was probably in Melbourne more than I was in Sydney at that time that's right yeah that's probably why it didn't happen so Deb we've got lots of injector listeners and people from different parts of the world so maybe give your little story to them so they sort of you know work out who you are and then we'll spin on to some of your endeavors 
Absolutely. Yes. Fire away. It's lovely to be on board. Yeah. So why don't, why don't you start off by telling us about your background? Obviously, you didn't, you didn't just wake up one day and, and were <laughs> the founder of Australian Skin Clinic. So if we could just get a little, obviously, you're originally from the UK, if anyone hasn't already picked that up from your accent, which is pretty mild these days, but maybe just tell us, you know, your history, sort of what you did early in life and what, what led you to this sort of business venture, which was pretty uncharted at that time. And just, yeah, and we'll sort of take it from there. So we'll take a trip down memory lane, so to speak. Okay. So I guess like my really early career was in retail, although my original training was in hospitality and institutional management. Um, I kind of fell into a few retail jobs when I was like in my early 20s and turned out I was really good at anything that required systems and procedures. Um, so at about 22, I was second in charge of a like a 10 million pounds. I stop every time I get the currency, 10 million pounds department store and um, did really, really great at that. We hit, hit all our targets. And then I went into um, their accounting offices, which was at the other end of the UK. It was in Taunton in Somerset and um, went into systems procedures. I'd done a stint in store openings as well. Um, and so I spent about it was only about six or nine months at that time running a department that actually put together store standard operating instructions and procedures for the de- for department stores. And I guess in a way that gave me the confidence later to do franchising because, you know, if you can systemize any business, it can become a franchise. Mm. And I did that for a little while. And um, Devon's was a fantastic, fantastic company to work for. Lots of training, lots of development. Um, but I sort of upset them at one point I accepted a promotion and then changed my mind based on the fact that house prices where they wanted to send me which was Reading it was their fifth biggest store were kind of 10 times the price of the house I had um up in the northwest and so um I kind of got sent to Taunton for punishment for turning down the Reading <laughs> job I think you know and uh, and I think at one point in between they wanted me to go to Belfast um but fortunately for me the IRA blew the roof off the Belfast store before it opened oh, and wow. it all got set back and I got redeployed which I think I was always grateful for <laughs> um and so I, I kind of I suppose drifted from job to job, but always exciting things, always on like store openings or new developments. And then um, one day my big boss called me up to London for a meeting and he said, oh, you've done so well with this department. Um, In Taunton, we'd like to offer you a role up here in Welbeck Street in London. And if Reading House prices were high, that was nothing (laughs) compared to London prices. And I kind of go, I've got to get out of here. And I had a chance meeting on a on a train with a guy who turned out to be Alan Sugar, but I didn't oh, know that wow. at the time. There you go. And he sort of said to me, little girl, why are you, why are you crying? Because I was in tears coming back from London thinking, what do I do now? And um, he encouraged me to apply for this job that was in, um, in the paper that day, which was um, a real, a really unusual role. It was the health service were advertising for commercial managers to come in and help them be more efficient at running various areas of their health service. And it was in general practice at that time. Mm. And I thought that'll do me for six months while I figure out what I'm going to do next. So I kind of applied for the job. 600 people applied. I got it. Wow. Um, and what I thought would be six months turned out to be 18 years of my life. So I was there <laughs> for an awful long time, but did a lot of different things in, in that time. 
Thanks, Uncle Alan, for, yeah. the, for the advice. And do we want to, <laughs> I don't know whether our, I know our UK listeners will know who Alan Sugar is, but I'm not sure how many of our Australian listeners it's will know who he is. The UK version of Donald Trump on The Apprentice. Yeah. So yeah. serial, like a Richard Branson type of character, I guess. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe less controversial very, than Donald Trump. Yeah. He's very <laughs> controversial. He's very aggressive. Yeah. Um, and if you have seen um, that version of The Apprentice, how he is on that is not an act. That's exactly how he was on the train. Mm. Quite aggressive. Told me what I needed to hear. Like I'm ever grateful for it. He made me reevaluate my skill set in about a two hour train journey. He'd coached, mentored, and trained me for the rest of my life. It was he was incredible. Yeah, that's really amazing. Incredible. Did, did you ever reach out again or, or meet up in a random meeting? I, n- I never did. I once I once did send him a message, but I never heard back. I'm sure he gets millions. <laughs> and on the day, I didn't know who he was, but yeah. it was only when I got home and I told my husband, my then boyfriend, now husband that I'd met this horrible man and this is what he said, but I was going to take his advice. And then months later, an advert came on TV and Alan used to do his own Amstrad adverts. Mm-hmm. And I'd always said to Sean, this guy was really familiar. I'm sure I've met him somewhere before. And then when he came on the TV, I was like, that was him. Yeah. Wow. Well, if you're listening, Alan, thank you. Dan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and if you want to be a sugar daddy and invest in the podcast, please, <laughs> please, please do. Hey, well, the sugar's in his name. So, you know. <laughs> there was the pun. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, Deb, we interrupted your story. Continue. Sorry. So 18 years. Um, your six months yeah, turned so, into 18 years. So I, um, in that time, um, I did a lot of work. So we we were part of this scheme called Fund Holding, which is about giving um, budgets to doctors to manage um, elective surgery and other care, which normally be managed by the hospitals. So the, the hospitals still did the work, but the, the doctors managed the budget. And then we were able to use any savings that we made from this elective surgery by contracting for better outcomes, at better prices and so on. And we could then use that to improve care for patients. So we introduced new new services and new care pathways. So it's really exciting work. Um, again, then the government changed. So the government changed its directions, always happens. So um, that was probably when we had one change of government was when I became involved in the Prime Minister's Office of Public Reform. And that was um, really just something I fell into. I was asked to attend um, this think tank, which was looking at disaster planning of all things. And what they did was it was really smart. They rounded up about 200 people in the room and they put a scenario. And that first scenario was that a nuclear reactor exploded. Right. And the question was, now what do we do? And in that room, they had representatives from primary care, which is general practice, secondary care, which is hospital services. Schools, police, fire brigade, everybody you could imagine that would become involved in such a disaster, there was representation in that room. And we were sat on tables of 10 or 12 with one representative from each group on that 12. And so all these tables of 12 had to produce a disaster plan. And we were monitored while it was happening. There were facilitators listening to what we were saying. That was when I found out that all general practices were supposed to have a, a supply of iodine tablets mm. for such an event if they're near a nuclear plant, and we were. Um, and we didn't have the iodines, so we did after that. So it was actually to plan out what would happen next. And it, it was amazing, the piece of work, really interesting, really thought-provoking, and the contacts that we made and, you know, the, I suppose the understanding you get of the other services that you would not normally know about. 
And then that led to other sort of think tanks and public um, opinion groups. Um, we also, um, the King's Fund in London, you might know them, they, are, um, they were heavily involved in it as well. So that was quite interesting over the years. And then that also led to consultancy work. So I did things like waiting list management in hospitals, where you'd find out that, for example, um, a gynecologist may have one day's worth of consults a week and four days of operating time, but she can't fill four days of operations from one day's of consults. And then you'd have an orthopedic surgeon who's got four days of consults and only one day of operating and, and has got too much flow. So we were working on how you manage those waiting lists and how you um, more cleverly plan and schedule the work that's coming in and meet the needs of the population. I think yeah. they need really, you back. Really interesting, real health, exciting times. And when I kind of relate now, I think people look at me and go, but, you know, you, you're into injections and beauty and they kind of don't realise that that's where I come from, like this passion for the real health. I, was say, I think they need you back. The waiting lists have gone absolutely bananas since COVID and all the rest of it. So uh, might might get a ticket back to, to London and see what you can do. Not unless they can <laughs> take the sunshine as well. Yeah, <laughs> fair. So I'm still sitting here scratching my head wondering, well, how the hell did she get into skin and beauty and, and Australia as well? Why did you move to Australia? Well, we'd done some really big things. So we had a pharmacy, which we bought. So again, that wasn't legal at the time. Um, I became the first non-doctor to become a partner in general practice in the UK. It wasn't a legal thing, but my business partners fought for me to become a partner because they wanted to keep me. Mm. And then we bought a pharmacy again. Doctors weren't allowed to buy pharmacies. So we fought the government on that and we got dispensation to do that. We opened the first drive-through pharmacy in the UK Wow. And um, we just kept building, building. We had a management consultancy. We had a, um, a non-profit company that did things like vasectomies and proctology and a few other services. And I was tired. I was exhausted. I've been doing it for 18 years. And my husband said, you've done enough. Let's retire. And he'd always wanted to move to Australia. In fact, we actually got married in Australia. So he always wanted to come back. And um, I kind of went, all right. I'll retire. It's a good idea. We'll move. Just before I made that decision, I'd started looking at aesthetics in the UK and we had um, a, a therapist who did kind of pregnancy massage and a few sort of soft things. And we also had a Botox doctor. So um, I'd started tinkering with aesthetics, but my other business partners who were, several of them were coming up to retirement at that point. We're, we're kind of, you know, we don't know if we want to do this and it's a risky thing to start something new and we've done so well. And so I kind of went, oh, my job's done here. I will retire. Um, but in looking at how to retire here, I, I discovered if you buy a business, that's the easiest way it was then to get in. And so I came on holiday to have a look. And I think it was the third day in the country I found the original Australian skin clinic for sale. And so I thought, oh, that's aesthetics. I'll buy that. It was just another <laughs> healthcare department to me because all health is the same. Yeah. Um, in principle, running it, and um, and so I bought that to get the visa, and it was it was run under management. And my intent was to leave it leave it running under management, but within about six weeks, I was climbing the walls with boredom, and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I thought, well, I'll go to work and grow a franchise. And how old were you at this point? Because you're talking retiring. Most people would consider retiring in, you know, 60, 70 years. Like, what age were I was, you? I was 44. 
That's yeah. young. Okay. Very young. Yeah. yeah. But we've done, we've done such a lot. And, you know, my husband developed properties in the UK and, you know, we, I also had a chain of diet clinics in the UK, which we sold when we moved here. So we were kind of at the point of, you know, we didn't need to work too hard. That was my theory anyway. Right. So what was, what was the state of the industry back then? So I know you moved to Australia in 2007. So I'm assuming it was circa 2007 when you bought the business. So what was the industry like back then? And what was the, the marketplace competition, you know, consumer sentiment, et cetera? Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. I um I felt I had this this perspective that was completely wrong and it was really interesting later when I unpicked it. So I'd gone from this huge multidisciplinary centre with, you know, we, for example, we had all the district nurses team and health visitors team. So we had so many people in that in that place to this clinic which had 14 staff, still large bystanders here, but I thought I was you know, this is a little corner shop business that was just going to get me a visa. Mm. And then I actually realized we were one of the biggest clinics in town, that we had more services than anyone else in town. And um, and suddenly it's my whole view changed on what it would be like to have a business in Australia. There were plenty of doctors doing sort of similar treatments, but tend to be more akin to plastic surgeons with medicines on the side. Um, and of course, no one was doing injectables in the shopping centre at that stage at all. And so, yes, it, it I sort of came thinking I was just going to take on this little business, then realised the potential, and then the GFC hit. And so I sort of spent a good period of the GFC just telling our staff, all we have to do is stay in business throughout this period. And then after that, we'll be one of the big boys in town and we'll figure it out. And I think there was a statistic at the time that 30% of beauty businesses on the Gold Coast went bust. Right. And so that would be not necessarily aesthetics, but, you know, some of the softer beauty as well. Um, but those sort of figures were banding around all the time. So we spent those sort of couple of years just focusing on surviving, being better at what we did. We already had good systems and procedures, but I was tightening them up and making them, you know, getting detailed protocols. So by the time we got out of the GFC, we were in a really good place then to grow. And I met some Bob Act. Bob Act was one of the first people I met here because he was a friend of the previous clinic owner and he introduced me. And we kind of spoke on the phone a couple of times and hit it off. And then when he came up here, he'd come and see me. So we sort of shared our vision. In fact, at one point, he tried to buy the clinic because he liked <laughs> our name better. And he, he said, it's a much better name than Laser Clinics Australia. So, um, but I didn't want to sell it. So, yeah. What town was that in um, up in Queensland? Was it's it... Ashmore in the Gold Coast. Ashmore. And um, who, who was the founder of that clinic? And did they only have one at the time or did they have a few? Yeah, it was Doug Rose. Yep. So he was a doctor who um, had quite a passion in acne, acne right. management. And um, and then he'd, he'd grown that practice into injectables and things like Fraxel and, and so on. Um, and so he also, Doug also founded ASAP Skincare. Yep. And so at that time he sold me the clinic so he could concentrate on the skincare. Right. Right. Okay. And you also did a, an MBA while you were in Australia just because you had nothing else to do and you were bored? <laughs> no, I don't know where you got that from. I did my MBA in the oh. UK. Um, oh, right. And, in the UK. But I was about 30, 30 when I did my MBA. Right. And I actually did a health services right. MBA. Yeah. Right. Well, here's a question. Um, I've actually got some friends, I won't mention their name, and they want to buy a business and they're throwing all sorts of ideas around, like, should we buy a, 
a pizza chain? Should we buy a, I don't know, a dog grooming service? And I, I always say to them, like, what do you know about those businesses? So, you know, and often the answer is, well, nothing. We just want a business. So what did you know about aesthetics? Like, wh- did you have any experience as a patient or, you know? No, I'm nothing. I'm, I, that's not true. I'd, I'd, I'd been to a couple of clinics um, and looked at things like endomology and that more because I had these diet clinics in the UK. So I was looking at, you know, always expanding, always doing, we never got endomology, but I went and had an endomology treatment enough to know I didn't like it. Um, I don't know what that is. But I didn't know anything about health before I went into health and I didn't know anything about retail before I went into retail. So, you know, my people always say, what's your superpower? My superpower is actually just being able to see what other people don't see Mm. is, and it's the opportunity. And then being able to, I'm good at planning. So, you know, I'll see an opportunity and I can, I can write down in an hour all the steps I think I need to take to go from A to B and what I need to research and what I need to find out. That's what I'm good at. So it doesn't really matter what the business is as long as it's, it's a business. Right? Yeah. What, okay. What's endomology? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't even know if it's around anymore, but it was like a roller that you roll along the skin yeah. and it sucked and vacuumed and it was supposed oh, to help with weight loss. Right. But it was very painful and yeah. witchcraft, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Snake oil. Snake oil. So- <laughs> You bought the clinic off Doug. It was a standalone business that just had injectables brought into it. So what happened between then and growing it to 60 clinics? Like how did, how was that growth trajectory and how did it all yeah, unfold so and look, the challenges? Yeah. Was, yeah, there was a learning curve. Um, and one of the things I did, and again, I took this from some of the work I did with the um, Prime Minister's Office of Public Reform, which is actually about how you unpick a service and how you look, you know, unpick it, evaluate it, and then rebuild it. And so I probably did that with the whole clinic. So I looked at every cost, every, you know, every staff grade. And the things that I discovered at that clinic at the time was there was too many staff grades and there was too many treatments. So we had, I think it was 47 different treatments Mm. and we had three, one, two, three, four grades of staff. So we had doctors and nurses. So there was equipment that only Doug could use. So Doug stayed on for a couple of years with me. There was equipment that and treatments that only nurses could do or nurses or doctors. And then there was two grades of therapists. So obviously in Queensland, laser was um, licensed so that we need laser um, qualified um, therapists. And then there was kind of we did a lot of waxing and tinting and low-end treatments, which other therapists were needed for that. And so when you're trying to spread your marketing budget across 47 treatments, it's too difficult. And your staffing budget against four grades of staff, it's too expensive. We had a full-time stores girl, and all her job was to manage all the stocks and supplies for all these various treatments. Um, a whole room was dedicated to being a storeroom. Mm. And so over a period of time, um, I weeded out treatments that were not that profitable. Doug had introduced, and, and wisely and correct at the time, he'd introduced treatments that would bring customers through the door who wouldn't want to admit that they had injectables, and so they could say they were having their legs waxed when they were having <laughs> injectables. But after a few years, that was less important because we were becoming more widely accepted for what we did. Do you know what? And, oh, sorry, I was going to say, that really reminds me, I've watched some you know cooking shows where a head chef goes into a restaurant and sort of scrutinises the business. And often the problem, just like you said, is the menu's too big. You've just mm. got to simplify. 
and and, yeah. and and make a few really good things and forget all the stuff that is just too complicated and needs more stock that is irrelevant. So, and it's that eighty twenty rule. You mm. know, twenty percent of the services bringing eighty percent of the revenue, and mm. it's detecting what they what they are, finding out what they are, and then putting putting the business case together then to make sure that all those services can be cross referred. The same group niching it down really, um, and that process was speeded on because we actually had a leak upstairs and it annihilated the whole of our ground floor. Oh. And so for four months we operated on half the floor space. And in those, and that was actually the tail end of the GFC, and we traded forty five percent up on the previous year despite having half the floor space. And that really solidified for me that all these services that we weren't operate, operating at that time because we didn't have the space never needed to come back and they didn't. So right. that was how it was born. And that was the model that went forward to be the franchised right. ASC at that stage. Right. Which sort of things did you binge? I mean, have they come back on Vogue, you know, in the future or? Well, I still have that original clinic and that original clinic's not in a shopping centre, it's in a medical precinct and it was always a bit different. So some of the treatments that we binned for the franchise, I did keep in that clinic. So they were there, the things we binned was the high end. So we were doing liposuction and threadless in there. So we, you can't do that in a shopping centre. Yeah. Even I think that can't be done in a shopping centre. <laughs> so so we, we, we sort of didn't offer those in the franchise clinics. And then the lower end, so we stopped doing waxing got rid of all wax pots and interestingly enough every time we got a new franchisee they'd say can we do waxing mm. you know it was, it was a bane of my life but we got rid of wax pots we got rid of um lash tinting and lash lash products um we got rid of massage because we did hot mm. stone massage and things like that so and we just caught narrowed it down to um facial treatments of which you obviously have micro microdermabrasion um laser treatments we did all types of laser treatments and then laser hair removal of course see we actually didn't do laser hair, hair removal at all when i first bought the clinic mm. uh, in the same way bobak's clinic never did skin mm. so we kind of i kind of taught him about skin and he taught me about laser hair removal so we had mm. a bit of a quid pro quo going on there well the clue is in the name one yep. was laser clinics and one was skin clinics. Skin clinics, exactly. <laughs> there you go. And now they're both, both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then the first franchise opens. I'm assuming the first one would be the most difficult and there was a still further refinement to the model after opening up the Interestingly, the only difficulty of the first one was getting a shop. So every time we um, spoke to a shopping centre, shopping centre leasing agents are men. And they don't necessarily understand the game. And so they, you know, they would blatantly say, no one's going to come. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. And Australia's a bit chauvinistic as well. And I found myself getting quite frustrated that they thought I was just some bimbo who knew nothing about business. Um, and then Helensville Shopping Centre was our first one. And they gave us a go. And um, the day we opened there, Rabina came down to have a look. and. At 10 o'clock, I was sat outside having a coffee with Bobak because he came to my opening. So I was sat outside having a coffee with Bobak and Rabina called and said, actually, we can give you a shot now. Funny that. And um, in fact, Bobak and I both went immediately to go. We left our, our opening and went to um, Rabina to size it out. And and that was my second one. And once, once that first one was open, it just snowballed. It was so fast. Yeah. And so who, fast. And who were you looking for as franchisees? What was your template or your... 
perfect person that you were looking for to, to sort of drive this business forward for you in a franchise capacity? So I was more interested in having someone with business skills necessarily than the natural therapy skills. Mm-hmm. And I think that was basically because that's the person that I was. I, you know, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a beauty therapist, and I can't do any of those things. Although I did get a laser license for a while, but never kept it up. Hmm. Um, but so I was looking for people who had business skills, previous experience in growing a business, hmm. um, and who had some genuine, I guess, interest and like of aesthetics. And that was kind of where we started at. Right. And over time, I think we refined it. So, you know, I actually went to, um, uh, Griffith University run a course on franchising or they run lots of events on franchising. And so I'd learned from there that you, you know, you didn't want anyone who was buying their wife a business. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that you don't look for. Mm-hmm. So I was smart enough to get some education on that before we even started franchising. Um, but what I did find is that it's an interesting relationship with your franchisees. So, you know, I want everyone to be successful. I had this formula. I was able to demonstrate that we could make money and this is how it was done. Um, but franchisees or potential franchisees tell you what you want to hear before they start out. <laughs> and that is that they're going to work hard and they're going to grow their business. And, and then afterwards they tell you, oh, I didn't think I'd be working so hard. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to be in the business every day. So we had a few interesting experiences along the way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pick up on the the shopping mall sort of concept because, you know, you, you started it with, well, for ASC and a lot of our listeners in other countries, it's still alien to them. They would never dream of, I don't know, having their Botox <laughs> or fillers in a in a big shopping centre. But that that's very normal here in Australia now. So what what were the challenges and, and what did you think at first? And, and maybe how did you have to evolve to sort of, you know, work in that sort of environment? I was, I remembered. So when I was about oh, 10 or 11, my mum picked me up from school. She almost never did. So we must've been going somewhere. My mum picked me up from school and a friend's mum came over to say hello to my mum. And she'd had her hair done and she had beautiful streaks and blonde streaks in her hair, very attractive lady. And after she walked away, I said, oh, Lizzie's mum's so pretty. And my mum said, oh, more money than sense, spending all that money on her hair. I could mm. feed the family for a week or some similar <laughs> comment, you know. And since I turned 15, you've never seen me with my own hair colour. So, you know, that's an indication of how the world has gone. And so when Botox and fillers became a thing, for some reason, I remembered that conversation. And I was like, you know, this is not going to go backwards. Everybody's going to want this. Mm. And so back in those days, hairdressers weren't so much in shopping centres. They were at the corner of your local street, you know. And I thought, this is the way it's going to go. And so for me, I never had any doubt that they will be successful in shopping centres. Now, my original clinic is quite highbrow. It's it's not in a shopping centre, as I said. It's in a medical precinct. Um it started 27 years ago now and still going. And a lot of the demographic who came in there were the wealthy people who wouldn't go in a shopping centre and probably still wouldn't. So there'll always be a place for that type of clinic too. And that's kind of why I've kept the clinic. Um, but definitely in my mind, I knew shopping centres would be a big success. Mm. And when did cosmetic injectables sort of come into the model in terms of... Oh, they were always in there. So right. That clinic always did. And that was what attracted me to buy it because I had cosmetic injectables in the clinic right. in the UK as well. Right. Mm. And so what was it like? Because I know that I was involved in LCA in fairly early days, probably around 2010, 2009. 
I think they had about four or five clinics when I when I when I joined, and they had just started to bring in cosmetic injectables. So this concept of nurses coming to work almost in independent practice within these models was, was fairly foreign. It was a hard sell. I remember sitting there with, with Bob Ack during some of these early conversations and he was basically on his hands and knees begging these people to come and, and give the model a go and doing things like guaranteeing their salary and all these sorts of whatever he needed to do to get the deal done. So did you have any of those sort of parallel experiences and, and sort of where were you finding these nurses? How were you sort of training them? Because this is still and I know you were doing it, but I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of, big. it no, wasn't compared well, to what look, it is think, now. I think the first thing was that original clinic, we had four injectors when right. I bought the business. Okay. So we had two nurses and two doctors and they, they were also, uh, the nurses were salaried, the doctors were commission based. Mm -hmm. And then in the years in between, at one point we had six nurses in there doing injectables. Mm -hmm. So we actually built quite a reputation for for being good at training, for developing yeah. the teams and the staff. So in the early days, we didn't have any problems getting nurses. But as we were growing and then other brands were starting out and the competition was getting greater, it became more difficult. And ASC had developed a training school and nurse injecting training as well, specifically to try and get people through. Um, we generally did um, basic plus commission, at, but at some stages we – interestingly we'd get a nurse who'd perhaps previously worked at lca <laughs> and they'd want their commission structure so we give it to them mm. but nurses who'd never worked in that environment before were more keen to have a basic salary plus commission and we just tried to accommodate them as we could i don't think i've i don't think we were i can't remember ever being in a position where we had no nurses okay. but yes there were times when we worried but actually laser techs were the harder for me mm. because with Queensland regulations yeah. that you didn't have down there in Sydney, that was really difficult to get laser techs through. Yeah. So just for anyone that's outside of Australia, we have different laws in different states and that's not uncommon. I know America's almost like 50, you know, 50, 50 mini countries. Yeah. But like in New South Wales, you could be anyone and essentially walking off the street and operate a laser. Whereas in Queensland, I think in Perth as well, although I think there's been some changes in Perth recently. Not sure if it's quite as lax as New South Wales, but you had it to have had to have what was called an LSO, so a laser safety officer certificate, which yeah. allowed you to operate a laser, which can do quite a lot of damage if you don't know if you don't know what you're doing. I remember with my my clinics, if there was ever going to be a litigation or a complaint or an adverse event, ninety nine times out of a hundred, it was always a la it was always a laser. It was rarely something serious with injectables. So mm. I guess there's good reason for that. So I guess that's why it was hard for you to find these people because not many people were wandering around having LSO certificates. Is, is that kind of what you're sort of inferring? Yeah, and there was also um, a huge misunderstanding about the legislation too. Yeah. So that was really interesting. So um, the legislation was that you had to do fifty hours. I think it was. 50, 25, 50 hours um, practice before, no, 25 hours, I think it was, practice on the skin before you could actually get your laser license. So you had to do laser safety um, course first and then do the 25 hours on the skin. Um, and we were told it was literally on the skin. So you can imagine by then we were getting into faster equipment. You could, you know, you could do a pair of legs in 20 minutes. It takes a long time to rack up those 25 hours. I went to talk to the laser safety department and the guy in charge there. And he said, no, that's not how it's meant to be. It's meant to be 25 hours, including consultations and this. But his staff were enforcing that it was 25 hours on the skin. So again, we had to do quite a lot of work there to get right. things 
documented that we could do it this other way and and that helps that helps significantly yeah. then which mm. may i point out we don't have an equivalent for injectables you do you know mm. one little jab of the glabella on a course and suddenly away you go and then you open up your own training school next yeah. week yeah so <laughs> yeah and what, I, what do you think of that <laughs> yeah i mean that was a problem and one of the things i used to we we used to tie the nurses into a training contract yeah. so they had to, they would pay back the training costs if they left beyond two within two years and proportionate if they left yeah. in that time um but yeah i used to i used to always the biggest one i had was people would come and say oh i'm, I'm a nurse a nurse in a GP clinic, I do vaccines all the time. I can do Botox. Oh. And I'm like, no, it, you know, this is an artist's job. What? How can you demonstrate to me you can artistically look at a face and rebuild that structure that's been lost? Mm. Um, and so that was, it was actually screening out the right person. There's also um, in health, there's this kind of attitude in nursing that you go through as many departments as you can in training and learn as much as you can. So you do three months in pediatrics, three months in ICU, move on. And there was a big belief they could just come do three months with us in private practice where we're funding the training and yeah. then move on again. Yeah. So we had, you know, we learned a few lessons along the way with that and we had to home and streamline yeah. the way we manage that. So did you have these nurses employed or did you have them under a sort of a contractor arrangement? What was, how were The you majority at that time were employed. Right. And okay. towards the end, we did more contractor arrangements. Right. Okay. I, I've got to say, th this comes up a lot. I want to ask both of you yeah. a question. So... Employed or commissioned, that, that's understandable. But for a new injector who, who isn't going to be busy straight off the bat, that's mm. just how it works. They often are in this limbo land of, well, do I leave hospital or mm. do I work part-time because mm. I know I'm not going to be busy? Mm. So how do you guys sort of not lure people in, but how do you make someone feel comfortable enough to want to commit when they might not be busy and how do you fund that as a as a business? Yeah. I know you used to do like a guaranteed like minimum earning per day regardless of how many injectables you did yeah well i mean exactly right so i mean these people came in there was no there was no database they had no momentum at all so it was pretty much starting from a from a standing position so we used to give them a a daily minimum guaranteed so no matter what they did they'd earn let's call it 40 dollars an hour for the sake of argument yeah and at the end of the fortnight or whatever the pay period was we would give them the greater of the two so that they would get x percentage of all their billing if that exceeded the daily minimum, they'd get that. If they didn't hit that, then they'd get their their hourly rate. But it was always, you know, the conversations I used to have was, well, I'm prepared to do this for as long as it takes to a degree, but you have to be, a, you can't just sit in your room and twiddle your thumbs and hope that the patients are going to walk in. And it's not just up to me. You have to be actively working your business. If you're not in a treatment, I want you at front desk. I want you engaging with patients. I want you introducing yourself. I want mm. you sort of building relationships. And so it was pretty much a, you know, a, 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 an agreement that was bound by, everyone doing the right thing and that tended to work quite well usually after around about six months six to six months depending on their personality type if it was a busy clinic where the clinic was situated they tended to get en enough momentum then they were sort of off on their own mm. um but that was how i did it what, what about you deb yeah so a couple of things when when i first um when we first had the interest you know someone applied for the job i'd look at what they've done already for their own education so if they'd done, for example, the AACDS or any of those mm. sort of courses, then I would, then they had my attention. Then I took them as serious. If they hadn't, I used to say, go away and do that course and come back to me when you've done it. Yeah. Um, because until they've actually learned a bit more about skin, it's great training a nurse up to inject, but you want them to know about skin. Yeah. You want them to understand the bigger picture. 
So if they've invested in themselves, then I would take the permit with them. Um, majority of them, we would have put them on a salary. And so we, and I always used to say to them, the first month, you're just going to cost me money. The second month, I'm hoping you're going to be breaking even. And the third month, you might make me a small profit, but you are not going to be a good practitioner until you've been doing this for at least six months at least. Mm. And so I'd set that expectation that this was what I was looking for. So the first month, they're pretty much learning on the tools, they're watching, they're mm. listening, they're not doing a lot. The second month, they start to practice bringing their friends in. And I always explain to them, when you're training, you're costing me money because I'm giving away free products. I'm giving products to people who would normally pay for products, you know, so it's a whole it's a whole two-way street. And then we'd have the training contact contract, and usually there was um, a bonus scheme. So when they did it over a certain level, they get a bonus or a certain percentage and they're on. And look, it's a personality thing. So, mm. you know, I've, I've worked with nurses who only want to be employed and I've worked with nurses who only want to be on commission. Mm. And, you know, you kind of just find a way that works. Yeah. You're going to have different people in different positions. If they've got family and financial commitments, they might want the security mm. of, an, of an employment status versus a contractor. Because it is, if you're sort of dealing with nurses who have been through the public system, and that was the majority, of there weren't people that were going through nursing degrees to then do injectables that, that that didn't exist people were transitioning out of therapeutic nursing yeah or real nursing inverted commas yeah. um to come and do aesthetics so them coming into like a contractor from being employed and having all that all those benefits you know it's terrifying it's be like holy shit what am i doing here i've got a family to feed so yeah you had to be a bit flexible i guess um which is what you're kind of alluding to and then so taking these nurses and developing their careers and continuing to upskill them and keeping them interested in the business because that was something that we always struggled with was keeping these people motivated, trying to encourage them to educate themselves and and sort of, you know, it was, it was kind of difficult because the industry was, was in its infancy and there wasn't a lot of places where people could get knowledge because, I mean, now we're sort of, we're spoiled for choice. I mean, you know, the quality of the training is questionable, but at least it's out there mm. and we've got the internet now and there's lots of stuff on YouTube, which wasn't really around back then either. So how did you sort of continue to sort of press forward and be a market leader and and and, and make sure that your nurses are at the top of their game as the industry continued to mature? So I think, um, well, very early on in the piece, I took I took my whole team to Cosmetics. It was called Cosmetics when that yeah. was literally within months of arriving in Australia, the first Cosmotex yeah. one, I took the whole team. And what I learned there is people go to Cosmotex to go shopping, especially <laughs> when it's in Melbourne, right? And so we took the whole team down there and one of the doctors who worked for us and two of the nurses who worked for us just disappeared a whole day and went shopping wow. and, and didn't attend any of the lectures. So that stuck in my mind because I'd paid thousands yeah. of dollars to do this. Um, so I was determined from then on that all training had to be very focused on what was relevant to the individual and to their needs and what the business needed, obviously, and minimum minimum opportunity to go shopping. So we used to put on our own conferences and we'd get, you know, people like Aldum and some of the companies to come and present and bring speakers in. We set up our own training school. We had doctors would run, you know, doctors we knew or doctors who worked with us would run, run workshops. So we tried to keep that progressive going and um, progressively going and keep them all educated. It also meant, you know, we made a, a decision early on, and I think LCA did too, that we wouldn't do noses because it yeah. was too high risk. Mm -hmm. And so that you send a nurse to a conference and they see a nose done and then they want to come back and try them. <laughs> so in my way, that was part of the, you know, 
risk limitation. We didn't want to do anything that was likely to come back and bite us. Yeah. And so the business model in terms of its revenue and what centers of the what parts of the business were making money, did that sort of change and evolve over time? Like uh, obviously in the early days, very skin-focused business, you did injectables. Was that the primary source of revenue and your, and your profit? And, and then how did that change over the years in terms of what became, I guess, the major breadwinner within yeah, your business? So interestingly, um, at the point we launched the franchise, Injectables was only about 25% of the business yeah, wow. and, and Skin was far more profitable. Yep. Um, and Laser was still very profitable because we're still, we're still getting decent prices for Laser. By the time I left ASC, it was um, um, injectables had risen to about 40%. Mm. And the margins on injectables were not so great. And the, the nurses were commanding higher commissions, so it was less profitable. Um, and then laser prices had started to be slammed. So, you know, there was a definite shift. I and mean, we were still making money. We were in busy locations. There's a still growing awareness of, of those sort of services. And I think I think the stats are still it's less than 2% of people have ever had a, uh, an anti-wrinkle injection. So, you know, it's still a market, but it was changing, definitely changing over the years. Mm. If I can, I guess, dangle a question. So in a previous episode recently, we had Bob on and, and we were sort of, I guess, reflecting on the current state of the chains and the economy and where, where things are going. And obviously you, you built another chain that, you know, it's now down here in New South Wales and everywhere else, but you, you sort of built a similar model to LCA and there was Silk and there's a few other ones. So what, what was your vision? Because David has sort of had the comment in the past that if you were sort of colorblind, they would all look similar so how did you try and differentiate yourself from from some of these competitors? And and where do you see things now, now you've left the business? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, the competition wasn't as great. Um, mm. There was no one, at, you know, when LCA and ASC started out, there was really no one else touching the sides the mm. way we did it. Um, the colour blind thing, we were bright blue. You could see us coming. <laughs> um, and that, that was part of the strategy is, to, is I wanted people to be able to, I wanted the staff to walk through the shopping centres and people to turn their heads and say, what do they do? Yeah. And and have their logo on, you know. So that was, um, I couldn't understand Bobak's logic to having black scrubs. That, <laughs> we've often joked about that since. Um, but in terms in terms of how we were different, we were here and you and LCA was still in Sydney at that time. So I think we had quite in in the same way as Bobak had a free run of, of Sydney, we had the free run of Queensland. It was quite easy to grow. Mm. But as time has gone on, yes, everybody's blurred into one another. And with the roll-ups, nobody knows who owns who. I mean, I jumped on the website the other day and looked looked at Silk's website and um and I hadn't realized there's another brand in there that they bought as well. So I actually missed that one. Right. Um so yeah, they're all rolling into one. And would I now start out a laser brand or an aesthetic brand of that type? No, absolutely not. And what I'm doing now is quite different. Um, so I think, I actually think, I wouldn't say it's past its sell-by date because those brands will continue to grow, but I don't think there's much space for new brands coming in. It's very difficult now yeah. to set up a brand new a brand new brand in that space. Yeah. Well, where do you think the opportunities lie? I mean, I, I mean I, I'll give you my perspective and then maybe you've got something different or you completely disagree is that i think that the lower end of the market has been pretty saturated and i think that 
as you said, there's a lot of sort of me too brands now where they sort of just copied the the template that you and Bobak created with your two brands that were sort of growing in different parts of the country simultaneously. But they seem to have all, no one really has an original thought now. They all just sort of just piggyback and copy each other and there's just this race to the bottom. But at the same time, you've had sort of this nurses liberation movement with, with, with fresh clinics that's allowed nurses to have more independence and go and open up their own businesses. I think at the same time as well, you've had <clears throat> consumers that have become more educated, have higher expectations in terms of what they want out of an aesthetic treatment. And so for me, I think the opportunities lie per perhaps more in the middle of the road or the upper end. I don't know if I would open up sort of at the bottom end of the market or the lower, the cheaper end of the market. But I'm curious to know what your perspective is. If someone said to you, hey, Deb, I want to hire you as a as a business consultant, and there's lots of nurses listening to this all around the world who I'm sure are going to be very interested to see what your response is. If they hired you and said, hey, Deb, what would you, I'm, I'm a cosmetic injector, I want to open up my own business, or I've got these, these ideas and dreams for something that could be big, what would your advice be? So I think, I mean, the number one rule of any business is look at the competition. Mm. What is around you? Is the room, is the space in the market? And competition isn't always a bad thing. Even when I bought the original clinic, there were 16, I think, similar type of clinics, albeit there might have been plastic surgeons mm. or whatever, but often similar services, um, all in the vicinity, all within probably a 5K radius. So, you know, competition isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I do think the bottom end is saturated. And I think there is a learning curve. So, you know, I've seen it time and time again. I mean, at one point we employed probably close to 680 staff in ASC. And I've seen time and time again, the beauty therapists, the nurses think they can set up, they can run their own business, <laughs> they go off, they've learned, and then they crash and burn. Mm. And I had one recently, a nurse who I have an awful lot of respect for, a fantastic injector, um, worked in a few of my clinics over the time went off set up on her own was now setting up a second one because she can't fill the first one and i'm like well mm. why would you open the second one because you're not following that first location sort that location out first so i think there is a learning curve for all the practitioners in there um and i'm seeing what i'm seeing more of is groups of practitioners getting together mm -hmm. to rent premises and chairs and rooms depending on their model and i think that's quite interesting um I think those nurses who've gone off just to be nurses on their own have struggled because I think one thing that gets overlooked is the amount of cross-referrals we do in clinic, that mm. we bring people in for laser and we encourage them to have injectables and vice versa. And when, you know, when you've only got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I think, yes, a lot of nurses used to say to me, what will you do if we leave? Because all the clients will go with me. And in my experiences, and it's very similar to the experience in most medical specialties, that if you lose a doctor or you lose a nurse, about 10% of their list might try and follow them. But when it gets quite difficult to follow them because it's no longer convenient because they don't travel that way or they don't drop someone off at school next to the surgery or next to the clinic, then they come back or they change again. Mm. So I think, um, you know, there is a learning curve for all practitioners and if I was doing it differently, and I'm doing it differently, so as you know, I'm on the board of Aura and we're looking at dermatology. So we're looking at the higher end, we're looking at the doctor-led, um, we're doing skin cancer, dermatology, hair transplants and, and high end aesthetics, but we're looking doctor-led because we feel that the general population wants a fuller service 
the security of a bigger group and a bigger team. And there's a there's a situation where a lot of people want to retire and there's no evident, no obvious exit route for them because of shortages in, in the workforce. Mm. Have you ever been in the situation, you must have, I'll ask both of you again actually, where an injector did, you know, maliciously or deliberately try and steal your database or, you know, advertise in front of your clinic just to piss you off or, I don't know, story, yeah. tell me the a, stories, I love all you of this. <laughs> I, had, I had a doctor, I had a doctor who did it, um, tried to steal the database, set up somewhere else, um, set up a, a competing clinic, not that close to be fair. Um, we did lose clients initially. And this is, this is in a way, this is one of the things that gave me the great belief in, in what I'm saying about people choose their clinic according to their lifestyle. So they'll choose a clinic because they shop in that centre or they drop the kids off at school next door or, you know, ballet lessons on a Saturday are, are in the vicinity. And when that injector moves, there's an element of they'll try and go to the new place, but then when it's too hard, they, swap, they stop. Mm. So, I, you know, if we've got lots of nurses and doctors listening to the podcast, I want to say to you, just rethink that strategy because people do not, they're not that loyal. They're loyal to their lifestyle and their convenience more than they're loyal to their injector. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a common question on Facebook forums, you know, what do I do? Because my clients will try and follow me and am I going to get sued? And mm. what, you know, there's generic mm. contracts that are similar for most of these chain clinics mm. and, you know, you can't set up within a five kilometer radius and all this kind of stuff. I mean, have you ever actually enforced one of those contracts where it got a bit horrible no i mean to be to be fair i've my whole strategy in life is actually is not looking back mm. so you know if someone does the wrong thing by me i'll absolutely let them know that i know they did it um and what i did with what the one who did take the list i actually wrote to my whole list and explained that that had happened right and that it was a breach of medical ethics and the doctor had done the wrong thing that's actually really sensible i never yeah. really thought about spinning it that way yeah and that and, and i was sorry that they'd done this yeah yeah, yeah that's a good idea similar stories <laughs> a nurse that we were letting go she was in her <clears throat> notice period like we sent in secret shoppers and she was even after we told her not to do it she was handing out her phone number <laughs> And it's just like, what do you, you know, you sort of can't, you can't sort of help these people. But I think that what you're saying is true. I think because the industry has become, become so commoditized, it's not like it was 15, 20 years ago where there wasn't many providers and people were willing to travel. But as this becomes more and more mainstream and there's more providers that pop up, the loyalty tends to dwindle because, you know, people have options. But I, but I, And this is what I say to a lot of, of my consulting clients and when I sort of give talks and what have you is that you need to make yourself irreplaceable because I think everyone just copies what everyone else is doing. If they've worked in a chain clinic, they're going up their own business. I see it time and time again. They've effectively taken what mm. they did at a chain clinic and just put it in a different looking location. And so that's not enough. And so I think that this comes back to – it's. I think good getting good clinical outcomes is just an expectation. You should be able to deliver a good, safe, effective treatment no matter who you are. But what will make people follow you and potentially break that rule, Deb, that you just outlined, which I think is, is, is largely correct, if you are providing people with a service they can't get anywhere else, how do you make them mm -hmm. feel? What's their experience like with you? What is your X factor? What is it that you offer that no one else can? And that's where I think a lot of injectors go wrong is that they focus too much on what they're doing rather than how they're doing it and how they're making people feel and how they're connecting with their patients. I think if you can do that, because I have seen this before, where injectors have left the business and they have an amazing rapport with their patients. Mm. 
they give them an experience they're not going to be able to get anywhere else and they will follow them to a degree i mean it's you know it's it is in varying degrees but i think there is something to be said for really focusing in on finding out what your x factor is and how you make people feel rather than what you physically do yeah and actually from an injector's perspective if you do do that really well what often happens is those patients who test the waters because of the convenience if they can't get their x factor elsewhere they will come back yeah so mm. stick to your core values do what you do yeah. well and uh, everyone will be happy yeah did you have anything to add to that Deb? i mean one thing i always say to all the staff not just the nurses is the customers here it's all about them yeah it's, it's about how they look how they feel how they want to look how they want to feel better and yeah. so you have no right to start asking them, you know, how the holiday was, what they're doing at the weekend, are they having a nice day and all this rubbish. All dialogue should be maintained to what can I do to help you? How can I make you feel better? What is it you want to work on today? What results have you seen since last time? And keep it to the facts because there's nothing worse. I mean, how many times we go to the supermarket and you know, the supermarket assistant says, are you having a nice day? What are you doing today? I feel like saying, don't be nosy. <laughs> no, I don't want to tell you what I'm doing today. <laughs> That's really interesting. I I mean, I don't do anything in a deliberate way at all, but I do, especially for, you know, new patients, I do try and create some sort of camaraderie, whether it's, you know, tell me about your background, what do you do, or where do you live? And I just want to know who they are. Not because I'm nosy. I mean, it might, hopefully it doesn't come across nosy, but it does give me an insight into their motivations, their spending power and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I can sort of tailor my language, maybe the choices that I sort of offer by understanding the more of a person. So yeah, it's interesting. I've, uh, yeah. I mean, but, but again, and what, what you're saying is right, because what you're actually doing is you're trying to find out more about them. But what I say is cut out like the immaterial talk that's not relevant. You're not the so hairdresser. I start with, <laughs> it's great to see you today thank you for choosing to come to us mm. tell me what is it you'd like us to do for you yeah and then and then the floor's there and you know i also say if someone says i want you to fix this line the chances are that's all, all you're ever going to do is fix the line but the majority of people will go anything what can you do what can you do to make this better yeah and then you've got open conversation and yeah. so i tell the i always tell the girls focus on opening the conversation for the customer not you leading the customer down a series of short questions that are actually relevant i have to say i do it the other way but maybe we end up in the same place so same place. i did and maybe it. you're more personal maybe you don't ask no 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 I, I, it, i've changed my consultation style through through trial and error essentially but also um by asking closed questions like what do you want today it sometimes focuses the conversation too narrowly that you can't expand on that and talk about the total face console. Whereas, I don't know, for example, I take photos first before I say, what are you here for today? And we just look at their face and then you know, a whole ton of stuff comes out because they see their face. And then I drill down on, I don't know, three priorities. So sometimes closed questions work. You're, you're right. There are some people who are just for there for that piddly little line and you're never going to do anything else regardless of whether they need it or want it. Whereas there are other people who certainly don't understand their face just like you said and they're more of an open book so yeah it's, I, I think different people have different consultation styles yeah. and almost you know some of those questions that i'm asking about who you are and what your job is i'm, I'm actually kind of psychoanalyzing to work out how closed or open do my questions need to be mm. I, I guess is my 
yeah. ultimate point. And maybe just to confuse things more, like what 80% of communication is not verbal. So it might mm. not even be what you say, it's how you say it. It's your energy, it's your body language, it's your tonality, it's your cadence. Mm. It's being genuine. Yeah. I think I'd be I'd be offended if you took a photo of me before we've had a consult because you I would think, why are you taking photos of me? I haven't decided if I like you enough to even have a treatment with you yet. So the way we do it, we just hand a mirror and say, okay, what is it you'd like to talk about? And I've only ever had a handful of people say to me this one thing. Normally they'll go, oh, this, my lines, my wrinkles. You know, they hold the mirror and they tell you the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but the, I actually wouldn't let you take a photo of me before consults. Yeah, the, That's interesting. The, trust me, I've adapted this as well. So <laughs> literally, as I say, we're going to take some photos now. I'll, I'll Before they open their mouth and say, why? I'll say, I know you're going to hate your photos taken. I know this feels awkward and I'll tell you why I'm doing it. And so I explain the process because you're right, there's resistance. Some people, like you said, they actually get offended because they feel like I've sort of jumped the gun of, well, why are we doing this? So you're right. You've got to have your your why before you, before you, ju to you jump to a process. But I found with the mirror or, or even just talking to someone and looking at them, I can't easily consult because they're moving they're laughing they're not really being natural so with the with the, the you know the static photos of different angles it zooms me into what what actually their 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 structure is so yeah there, there's method to the madness yeah um and and trust me there are some injectors who don't like doing the photos they, they'll go for the oh. the mirror or whatever yeah so i don't know who it was that told me this the other day but they I don't know if it was on a pod. I had so many. I have so many conversations now with people, whether it's on a podcast. <laughs> it's or called Alzheimer's. It's called <laughs> is that um, someone will hand a patient their mirror and tell me tell me three things about your face that you love. Mm. You know, oh, we're, that's all, an interesting we're, one. All, we're always focusing on the negative. It sounds like Anita. Maybe, Maybe. I don't. I don't think it was Anita, but it sounds like something Anita would do. Hi, Anita. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like something Anita East would say. But I think that. Changing the con and like I've, uh, this person said that like some of their patients actually start crying and say no one's ever asked me that before I've never actually looked at the positive things in my face yeah and it's like well let's find out what it is about you that you love that makes your face unique and let's fo let's work around that let's enhance your let's let's you know if you've got beautiful eyes let's look at what we can do to enhance that and mm. and sort of changing turning the conversation on its head and and rather than being negative and I hate this and I hate that is let's start with the positive yeah and how can we make you feel even better. Yeah. So I think I think what this conversation has taught us is there's many ways to skin the cat and what works for one person might not work for another. Oh yeah. For and, sure. and finding out and I think I think the thing is if it's genuine, if you really care and you're able to develop that rapport, that you can probably get away with a lot of different strategies. It's about the individual. But I think a lot of people just go through the motions and it's almost like they're at McDonald's taking an order. And yes. that's never gonna work. Yeah, I think that's the one. My one bit of advice is don't let them do the McDonald's order because <laughs> often the order is wrong. They yeah. don't. They don't yeah. know what they don't know. Yeah, would you like? You're the expert. Would you like an occlusion with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, an extra value occlusion meal. <laughs> God, um, I'm keen to know more about the, the, this uh, business that you're currently working with, Deb. Like, I, I've not heard of that um, brand. Yeah, so we're called Aura Medical, and um, we've. Um, we're, we're doing a roll-up, I guess, so a consolidation mm -hmm. of dermatology, like I said, dermatology, hair transplants, some aesthetic clinics and skin cancer clinics. So how many are there at the moment? Um, I think we're on about 10 at the moment, and we've got quite a few more in the pipeline, a few offers gone out this week. So, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So that's been around, um, 
we only sort of got going properly maybe about 18 months ago. Yeah. And um, it was sort of, con- the idea was conceived during COVID, but we dragged our feet in that period of time. And, uh, and yeah, so that's been, that's been really, I'm on the board and I'm a founder shareholder, but I don't work in the business. Right. Right. And how does Air Physio fit into all of this? Because I know that's sort of linked to the Aura Medical Group. Is that the advisory No, board? no, yeah. it's not linked oh, at all. Linked that's at a completely all. different thing. Right. So, okay. um, Air Physio is, um, yeah, it's going back to medical stuff really, but um, I've known the owner of Air Physio for quite a number of years. He's called Paul and um, he's got this great device, which is um, designed to help um, people with asthma um, and breathing issues. So it's a small handheld device. The way I describe it is, you know, when we were kids and there was the game, it was like um, a pipe. And it had a ball bearing into not a ball bearing a ping pong ball mean. in the top, yeah. and you blow it, and the ping pong ball hovers. But instead of a ping pong ball, it's a ball bearing, and they're different sizes depending on your age and anatomy and your problems. And it creates Paul describes it as a Mexican wave in um, in your lungs, and it and that waves out all the mucus and bad things in your lungs. And um, he's had this business for quite a few years but in covid it went crazy yeah so everyone's got always respiratory problems and at the moment we're just um well we've got studies going on um for the effects on lung covid the studies are looking really favorable at this point in time mm. and the device is now available in 85 countries wow. huge success it's a local business in um in tweed oh there you go which is the north coast of new south wales i think isn't it yeah yeah so Chains have all been acquired by big, you know, corporations, and I think ASC were. I'm Silk getting this wrong. They they are part in Silk, right? Yeah. So what, it's like a game of Pac-Man. People just keep eating each other. It's just yeah. <laughs> so where do you see the next evolution of you know these chains? Are they all just going to be sold to another bigger, you know, shareholder? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Look, I think it's it's really interesting. Um, I mean, isn't West Farmers are about to buy Silk, I believe. Yeah. They went through um, yesterday, I think. Mm. Yeah. Did it go through? Yeah, yeah. It was okay. something was published and I saw everyone congratulating Silk. So congratulations, Silk. Yeah. Um, so I think it's inevitable that they're going to be acquired by businesses who have synergy mm-hmm. of some description um, and and they're going to continue to grow. But as I said earlier, you know, there's come a point. Well, Bob always used to say to me, there's Coke and Pepsi and there's no room for anyone else. So I think, <laughs> you know, there's, it, we'll get into that. There is Coke and Pepsi now and there's no, there's, um, mm. there's no room for anyone else. Um, the, I've been involved a little bit with conversations in the UK. So there's a, there's a con- uh, company in UK are doing a roll-up of beauty businesses, but they're specifically not targeting laser clinics. Um, so they're looking at more softer beauty. They've got... Mm. Um, I actually don't know what their point of alignment is really at, at this stage. Mm. There's um, a few groups have contacted me from America to see what I think are going there. Mm. Um, I think that would be a hard job. With, I mean, it's bad enough with number of states we've got mm. here and different legislations. There's yeah. 50 odd states and different legislations in America would be difficult. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here in Australia, I, I, I'm not saying there won't be any more change. I think there's a great opportunity for existing smaller businesses to really concentrate, work up their EBITDA, make themselves profitable, and then on sell into a bigger brand. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of interesting all the, these chain clinics have become the antithesis of what they set out to originally be. They've become big, slow-moving monoliths that are now probably going to have 
challenges in terms of how quick they can make decisions, keeping up with market trends, having their finger on the pulse at sort of a, a local level. And I think you're right. I think there is opportunities now for smaller players to come in and who are able to be nimble and have lower cost structures. And uh, I guess also just the passion. I think that sometimes when these large corporations, not picking on anyone in, in particular, um, like when these companies acquire these businesses, like the soul gets stripped out of them and there's no passion anymore. And so I'd be curious to know, like, where do you agree with that? And, and what, how do you think these large corporations have done overall in terms of how they've purchased various chains and, and sort of corporatize them? Do you think they've done a good job? And did you think if you advise them to do anything differently? I think some things are inevitable. So, you know, a few of my franchisees said to me later, you know, we knew we could call you mm. whenever we wanted. We knew you were passionate. You wanted us all to succeed. Now we just feel we're, fe we're feeding a bigger wheel. And mm. so I think that personal touch goes, but that's inevitable in any mm. growing business. You know, the founder cannot be left, right and centre forever. And um, and in fact, at one point, I had franchisees calling me at nine and 10 o'clock at night on a Friday night. Um, and I actually ended up changing my phone number because as much as I was <laughs> quite happy to speak to them and advise them, I only wanted to do it really in working hours. Yeah. Um, so it's inevitable you know, as a founder that you, you, the organization outgrows your personal contact. And I think any big corporate is going to, the wheels are going to move more slowly. Mm. And I think with big corporates come risk and strength. You know, they've got the strength in the numbers and the experience. I wish I'd met some of the money people I met later when I still had ASC, I might have looked at the certain aspects of the business differently. But I do think the big corporates are losing, I suppose, the the detail of what's happening on the ground floor mm. and that personal contact with their customers and their customers are their franchisees. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What was your reason to leave um, Australian skin clinics and, and when was it? Um, so I didn't intend to leave. So that was never in my game plan. I was This was something I saw myself doing for a long time. Hmm. I entered into a merger. I was looking for, um, I suppose, a business partner with some strengths that I didn't have, more experience in franchising, um, something that was going to help us move faster and more efficiently. Yeah. Unfortunately, I made the wrong choice of partner. Um, it's pretty well documented. I ended up suing them and a a two and a half years later, I exited. But um, so would I do things differently? Yes, I wouldn't have taken on a partner. Um, but it was never my intention to leave. Right. At the end, I had the opportunity to buy it back, buy the other half back. Um, but so much had happened in the meantime, in that two and a half years, I decided it was easy to just take my money and go, which yeah. is what I did. Yeah. Okay. I was just thinking you were supposed to retire in 2007. So what, what the hell happened? <laughs> you built a 60 chain plus clinic, uh, buying or into air physio. You're doing all this stuff with this yeah. new brand. No, I'm, only Aura. The, I'm only on the board of air physio. Oh, I don't, I haven't bought into those. I am. I have bought into Aura. Yeah. Um, I, I then re retired again in 2019 when I sold ASC, mm -hmm. um, bought, a little hobby business, more for my son than anything, got carried away with that. And then in two, 2020, I bought Isada Mineral Makeup and, and subsequently launched the skincare range in that brand. Right. And so I'm still working, but my husband's kind of giving me the threats now that I have to yeah. give up soon. Is it Al Pacino? Every time I try and get out, they pull me back in. Was that, was that movie? I forgot that. Anyway, someone out there will get that reference. So one of the things we're going to talk about quickly 
was um, theft. You meant when we were sort of planning this podcast. Oh, yes. We said we wanted to talk about theft. I could go on forever about all the, the things that have been done to me over the years in terms of theft. I, one particular story, one of my therapists uh, took a photo of a company credit card and booked herself and her <laughs> partner a weekend at the Crown Casino in Melbourne uh. and did it in her personal name, the idiot. So I'm looking at the statements going, <laughs> saying to my business partner, Cassandra, did you and like Ben organise like a weekend down at Melbourne and you've just picked up the wrong card? No. And so reverse engineering this thing and like, <laughs> it's just like some of the crazy stuff. So tell us, sell us some of your stories and how you deal with it. Because it, it is a challenge as a business owner dealing with these sorts of things because, you know, everyone's got your hand, their hand in your pocket. If it's not the AT, if not the Australian government, the tax department, it's, it's your staff. So It's true. Um, so I think in my career now, I've sacked or engineered out more than 80 people for theft. Wow. So, and I would say around 50 of those would have been here in Australia in the last yeah. 16 years. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I've actually written a whole fact sheet based on this industry, how people will cheat you. And if, if you want it, jump on my LinkedIn and let me I know you want it, it and Patreon I'll send it to sure. anyone who wants yeah. it. Put it on our Patreon, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so some of the really interesting ones. One, I had one staff member who um, had injectable treatments, didn't pay for it, but we had her on camera um, <laughs> hiding the tech slip under the keyboard and then moving it along the counter and then putting it in the bin, <laughs> then claimed she was going to pay for it and didn't, then tried to take me to unfair dismissal for sacking her for theft. And, oh, my God. Um, she dropped it in the end. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't playing playing nicely on that one. Um, and she's gone on to have her own brand. So she actually has a skincare brand now, and I'm just waiting for Karma to catch her for that one. <laughs> wow, there you go. Um, yeah, just just absolute crazy. Um, yeah, just and the amount of collaboration sometimes. So this going back to my Debenhams days, but there was a couple of occasions where we could find upwards of 10, 11 people all collaborating in theft in, in a department store. Kind of like organised crime, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and and amazingly, interestingly, some of the biggest thefts I saw in that in that role I had were on the cosmetic departments. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I've, seen some, I've seen some pretty interesting stuff with injectors and they actually end up stealing from the clients, which inevitably then steals from the business. So they'll, they'll sort of do like 50 units that they've said they've given the patient. They've actually given them 45. They've siphoned out five units for themselves and they're treating their friends and family at home for cash. Yeah. So that yeah. stuff happens all the time. So all you injectors that out there that think that we don't know that you do that, we do know that you do that. Have, <laughs> and then what do they do? Do they, oh, they, I guess they just don't give the patient. Yeah. So five. I mean, like, are you going to be able to, how are you going to prove that you short change the patient by five units? Oh, yeah. If you do that, you know, do a couple of units at a time and all of a sudden you've, You've got yourself a free vial of Botox that your employer has paid for. That's crazy. Or had the other ones where people would say, oh, I've dropped the vial of Botox. Where is it? Oh, I threw it in the bin. <laughs> or you know, so it's I like trying to herd cats because it's kind of like you have to, I had to start keep creating, pol I started creating policies for this one injector. Oh, I've burst a syringe of filler. Mm. Where's the filler? It's in the, like you just almost had to like start trying, okay, well. I put it in the bin outside so you can't find it. Yeah. Oh, it's just. Yeah, it's the, the, the if people put as much effort into I know stealing who you mean from as well, you, by the way. Yeah, if people put in as much <laughs> as much effort into stealing from you as they did from doing right by their patients, um, they'd be yeah, far more they'd successful. They'd make more money if they yeah. uh, if they just concentrated on the job in hand. Well, oh, yeah. well as business owners, I'll, I'll just ask you the question: How does that work from a, a legal or a registration perspective? If you catch a, a nurse or even a doctor stealing or lying to patients and basically manipulating the notes by lying about a dose. That's a major issue. 
It's not. It's it not. is, but proving it is is more complicated. And so, you know, that's why I said that a lot of the times we just manage them out. So, you know, if you've got an injector who's repeatedly getting clients coming back for top ups because it's not worked, then that's a clear indication that something's a red flag. Either they're not injecting properly, or they're injecting less than they're saying. So either way, it's not good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely, I had a, I had an instance where um, a nurse we had bottles literally going missing. This was very early on in the piece when I just had the one clinic and I worked out over a period of time, we'd lost about $60,000 worth of Botox. Oh my God. And, uh, and I knew, I knew who it was, you know, there was clear indication. I mean, I always say there's kind of three things they need. One is a motive, a reason to, uh, another one is a justification. So, you know, in the, in the case of that particular nurse, a partner had left her, she was, struggling to make to meet the rent she needed the money justification was that she thought she was working too hard and she deserved more than she got and then the third one was the opportunity and you know the systems just weren't tight enough to, to pick it up early on mm. so if you can kind of always keep the eye open for the motive and I, I often listen to people's conversations just to find out what's going on in their lives just to weigh up the risk people who visit the casinos a lot are always yeah. highly in my radar yeah um, and then just make sure they don't have that justification. Mm. I try to be a fair employer. That's subjective, though. What I think is fair <laughs> may not be what other people think are fair. 60, and then 000. the opportunity to make sure the systems are tight. Yeah, that's insane. $60,000. Yeah. yeah, I, I mm. used to, Um, yeah, si similar to what Deb said, just try and cut off every opportunity and make it difficult for them. So I used to have conversations in the end when I was employing nurses or, or sort of providers. I'd be like, I know all the ways that you're going to potentially could try and steal i'm not saying you are going to steal but i know the ways that it's done this is what you'll do mm. if we start to notice that patients are getting movement back more there's a complaint they feel like they're underdosed we'll be looking at this very seriously um doing stock checks at the beginning the end of the day and i think as well like if you're a business owner that's not medical or not from this back not from this industry i think a lot of the time people will take advantage of that if you don't take a, an interest in understanding what dosages and, and what what things should look like and what's normal and what's not people will take advantage. So just knowing like what a dose should be, what, how long a result should last, um, doing a, like a stock count at the beginning of the day, end of the day. So opening stock, less closing stock should equate roughly within a small degree of variance what should be. <laughs> I'll be raiding the room at lunchtime doing yeah. a snap, t a snap yeah. check. <laughs> so I think it's just about trying to cut off every opportunity and, and being educated and, and, and being across your stock. If you sort of have a blase attitude about it, then you just it's like, going in the water with your leg cut open like you you're inviting a shark to come and take your leg off so wow you know yeah and that's you know the crazy things i mean you know i think the injectors get a hard rap because it's a high value value product yeah but you know honestly therapists who've had second oh, had yeah. square you know the square square readers yeah in their pocket they tap a customer's card on yours and then tap it on their pockets and take the charge twice <laughs> we've seen that happen a few oh, times so it's a goodness. whole gang in Chadston Shopping Centre were hitting all the shops and they had um, staff in different shops all doing the same thing. Mm, crazy, wow. crazy things I've seen. Crazy. So before we sort of wrap things up, I'd love, love to know if, if you could grab out your crystal ball and have a look into the future in terms of where you think the industry's going, in terms of treatments, in terms of growth opportunities and sort of just generally where you think we are going as an industry. Well, the industry is still going, and it's that will always be going. It's never going to be. <clears throat> it's never going to be fashionable to be ugly or old-looking or hairy or any of those things. <laughs> um, 
Equipment's interesting. I feel like there's not much new in the equipment. Like everything's just a variation of a theme going on. And mm-hmm. I keep waiting for, constantly looking for the next big, big thing, but um, constantly underwhelmed by everything new that comes out. Um, I think what I see in the next 12 months is I think there's going to be a lot of struggling businesses. And that's sad, but that's going to be a combination of interest rates rising, people in debt for equipment that they're, they're paying a lot of money on and not able to use enough to justify its existence and skill shortages because staff don't want to work and they don't want to work full time. And one thing I always say, you cannot build a decent list of clients if you don't work a minimum three days a week. And three is my absolute minimum. Yeah. Yeah. And yet therapists all the time are telling me, I just want to work two days a week and that's not going to work for me. So I think we're going to see a hard ride the next year. People will space out the treatments yeah. for longer because they want to spend the money. Not saying they won't get the work done, but they won't be back at 12 weeks on the dot for their mm. um, Botox and fillers. Um, but I think, as is always the case, we'll ride this recession. And when we get to the end of it, I think the life will be good again. Yeah. And I hope in the meantime, we see some new technologies come out and more radical things. I think one of the areas I've really got into more lately is the sort of the more holistic side of anti-aging. Mm. So I'm taking the Resivitol and the NMM yeah. and all the things that Ooh. are on trend now. You need to look at Nichito. If you listen to the episode we did... With Two or doc, three episodes. Dr. Nicola, Nicola Conlon, one of your fellow Brits. I think she's a Geordie. She is. Oh, she's okay. a Geordie. Um, lovely, young. She seems young. Well, maybe she's 60 and she just her tablets <laughs> really work. Um, Nichito, <laughs> see, she took us through the history of NMN and the fact that the form that it comes in is not really. Or bio, NAD. NAD, sorry, not VAR. But anyway, you'll have a listen. Sorry, just a plug for one of our episodes, but I think you'll find that really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Very switched on girl. Yeah. I don't actually think Lady, we, we, we plugged this in a verbal uh, sense, yeah. but we've actually got um, a discount code. Oh, okay. so if you yeah. do go to World Wide Web, nuchido.com, so N U C H I D O, um, go through to the, the cart and order what you like and then use the code IA20. You get 20% off. Yeah. So. Oh. Yeah, so very interesting. Sorry, Deb, we, we cut you off and did a shameless plug. And cut, sorry, continue. <laughs> <laughs> we stole your yeah. uh, show. show I think I'd kind of finish that. Yeah, that, that paragraph. Yeah. yeah, and AI is going to be interesting too. I think, and how that's all going to integrate it. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll become more efficient at things like marketing and um capturing the right patients using yeah. some of these ai techniques. But I, I, I don't yeah. think <laughs> anyone un- fully understands. You'll it unlock yet. your phone. It is time for your Botox. <laughs> There we go. You are officially ugly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Deb, it was absolutely lovely to meet you finally after years of being dangled that there's this lady called Deb, you should meet her. It was a, a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Deb. I hope really. it wasn't a disappointment. No, it was fantastic. We loved it. Thank you. I've just realized there is a weird, um, not connection as such with Alan Sugar, but on his apprentice show, must have been closer to 10 years ago, the, the winner was a girl was called a Le- yeah, Leah Totten, and she's, Leia. she's a doctor. And and he funded at least her first clinic, and I think she's become really successful. Oh, so Leia. that was actually when I emailed him because ah. I, I saw the show and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to let him know what I'm doing, you know. Yeah. And just and I said, like, you probably won't even remember who I am, and he probably doesn't. If if he talks to every stranger on the train, the way he spoke to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to reach out to her. I'm going to Instagram her and see if she'll come on for an injector diary. Yes, or maybe business of injecting. Yeah, either or. Yeah. Sound great. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Deb. We shall, well, it'll be nice to meet you at some point soon. Yeah, when you're in Sydney, you give us a holler. 
we'll I catch will. up with the with the wonderful one of a kind Mr. Bobak and we'll uh We'll have, we'll have a piccolo latte together. <laughs> Something a bit stronger than that, surely. <laughs> Honestly, I don't see the point of these piccolo things. I, I, I keep agree. That's them. I like a big mug. <laughs> That's David. All right, well, we'll speak soon, Deb. Thank you Thanks, so much. Deb. Thanks a lot. Thank Take you, care. Bye. Bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.